0: Welcome to this New Mexico in Focus episode of our podcast. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. And today is Monday, July 12th, 2021. Back to bring you more from our show this week that you can catch every Friday night at 7 on New Mexico PBS or Sunday mornings at 7 a.m. And we encourage you to listen back to our last episode if you haven't already. We've had a couple great interviews with some very talented photojournalists. Uh, both happen to be from the Albuquerque Journal. But we talked to Roberto Rosales about his coverage of the crisis on the U.S.-Mexico border. We also talked to uh, the newly retired photo editor for the journal, Dean Hansen. So give those a listen as well as our great Our Land report on the Cerro Negro Forest Council up in northern New Mexico and their innovative model for taking care of the forest and the land and uh, using a community and historical-based approach to do that. Up first on this episode, we're talking to uh, a New Mexican who specializes in covering uh, contested elections. Uh, You might remember Rachel Kleinfeld. She uh, grew up in Santa Fe, lives there now, and is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. She's also the founder of the Truman Security Project. We talked to her a while back uh, about her research on reducing the possibility of violence surrounding our elections. We did that right in the wake of the 2020 elections, but many of those Uh, obviously election issues, post-election issues, uh, questions about the integrity of the vote, uh, the results of the vote. Still, we're feeling the effects of that today, we know, of course. Um, And during that interview, we just didn't have time in the show for a continuation of the conversation, but we wanted to bring it to you here. Uh, She sat down with correspondent Russell Contreras, and they talked about how uh, the Black Lives Matter movement also rolls into uh, the elections and the potential for protests and violence around that, Uh, and in particular, one of the things the Black Lives Matter movement for the most part has been so effective uh, around is the nonviolent aspect, the peaceful protest aspect. And uh, Rachel talks a lot about how her research has shown just how effective that type of protest is in these times. And uh, we'll also play a role in what we see next year as we head into the midterm elections in 2022. Of course, we'll have a governor election here in New Mexico as well next year. So very timely interview here with Rachel Kleinfeld, who uh, joined Russell Contreras. And again, this is a, a really fascinating conversation we just didn't have time for in the show originally, but want to bring it to you here now. So let's send it over to Russell Contreras.
1: Rachel, thank you for joining us uh, for this Web Extra. We really appreciate it. Um, You've talked and written about nonviolent resistance that can be the most accessible drivers of social change if the message is broad and it appeals to enough people. How does the Black Lives Matter and the protest after the murder of George Floyd and the shooting of Jacob Blake seem to you through that lens?
2: So the tragic deaths of George Floyd and so many other um, African-Americans in this country have, uh, if there's been any possible silver lining, finally helped many other Americans understand the, the incredibly unequal justice that this country has meted out for a long time. And that is good because what we see from overseas is that when you really have success as a social movement, you do two things. You have a broad base of people. That's about numbers, but it's also about um, crossing silos. So in our country, that would mean black and white. That would mean Native American and Um, Rural and urban, and uh, people who are Democratic and people who are Republican. The reason that that kind of broad base matters is that it's not just about numbers. In highly polarized societies, which is where you see that kind of highly unequal justice system, in highly polarized societies, if you have a narrative that only reaches your side of the polarized divide, your narrative will be dismissed by the other side, and you will not break through and you will not succeed. So what social movements have to do is create narratives that bridge those divides and that makes them bigger, but it also means that they can be heard. And what we saw after George Floyd's death was for the first time a narrative about inequity and the problems in our justice system finally breaking through to many whites who hadn't believed it before. And that's a real source of hope.
1: Now, I was in Kenosha earlier this year, right after um, the city, was hit with riots, and I could still smell the fire. And when I got there, and I kept thinking about uh, Milan Kundera's novels about Czechoslovakia during the communist occupation, and I was hit with this existential crisis, this question for me, that sometimes violence is inevitable to fight systemic systemic inequality. Is that fair? I mean, it's it's something that really struck me. Is violence sometimes the only answer to, to systemic inequality to overthrow it? Or, you know, or is, is that just a cynical view from our twentieth century Marxism and capitalism's Cold War dichotomy?
2: Well, what the research shows, and here I'm drawing on Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan, who are really the, the um, most able researchers. Erica's now at, at Harvard and has gone on to do just a plethora of research on this is that uh, violent violent protest fails far, far more often than nonviolent protest. And she's um, categorized this across the 20th century, uh, done the numbers, and she's also done the deeper research, the case studies and so on. And what she's found is that it's not just that it fails systemically, um, it's that it fails for a reason. And the reason is that as your protests become more violent, you lose that broad base that I was talking about before. So. You know, I'm a mother of two kids. I believe strongly in a lot of progressive social change, but I also want to keep my kids alive. So if a a protest becomes violent, I'm not going to go out to it anymore. And that's what happens to a lot of people. As as violence starts happening, what you start getting is um, a shrinking of the people willing to protest. That shrinking allows the security services and also the people in um, power to isolate the protesters, to create counter-narratives against them, and um, to, to arrest more of them, to silence more of them because there's fewer of them and to uh, create wedge strategies against it. So when you, when you create violence as part of your protest, you lose a lot of not just the moral high ground but the actual people who are enabling you to succeed. And that is uh, unfortunate. And it's unfortunate particularly for people who uh, feel so strongly about this cause that they think, well, I'll just commit some property violence um, because even property violence has this effect of uh, polarizing and narrowing the other side. People feel property violence is violence against, uh, violence against them, themselves in a certain way. So it's very important and it's a very hard message for some people to take in. When people are angry to be told that they're not allowed to use violence is hard for some people, but it's what all the research shows.
1: Are you hopeful for the 2024 election that we won't be as tense as we were this time around.
2: You know, I think um, it'll help a lot to have a more moderate voice in power. But I'm, um, I would say I'm cautious about what happens in 2024. In in my own research, in other countries that have had a leader like Trump, which in political science parlance we would call this an authoritarian populist leader, a populist because. He's trying to appeal directly to the people against the institutions of democracy, basically saying, you don't need those institutions, come straight to me. I can sort of break the institutions and get things done. And an authoritarian because he wants to concentrate power in in himself um, as well. And so that kind of anti-elite concentration of power message puts him in that category. When you see other authoritarian populists in other countries what you see is either they win twice, that's what Yasha Monk's research shows, they often win a second term. In the cases where they don't win a second term, you often get a centrist who follows. That centrist is not very satisfying to a lot of the electorate. Um, uh, The side that was on the side of the authoritarian populist is kept going by the direct messaging to the people, whether it's left or right, whether you're talking about a, a Chavez in Venezuela or a Berlusconi in Italy. That direct messaging continues and and riles up the base and the people on the side of the elected leader feel like they're not getting what they really wanted, which was a fire and brimstone fight. You know, they wanted to bring the fight to the other side and instead they're getting more moderation often because of what we are likely to face here, which is a split Senate uh, presidential, you know, two two different parties in power. And so they end up one-termers. And then what you tend to see is a bouncing back and forth between different polarized sides. So very right, very left, very right, very left. Italy uh, perfected this by electing both the very right and the very left at the same time. And they got a, a sort of se- a single government that brought together their nativist party and their um, kind of far left party and the same government which lasted for in typical Italian fashion just a couple years. So hopefully we will get better. But the research suggests that is not incredibly likely, and that there's changes that we need to make to, uh, to change that dynamic. I really think that the ranked choice voting that Santa Fe has passed, that's in a lot of other counties in um, New Mexico are interested in, holds one key because it's a depolarizing mechanism. You don't vote uh, solely for a Democrat or Republican. You get to pick your flavor of Democrat and Republican, and that allows for much more responsiveness to an electorate. Um, And that kind of structural change, if it passes in other states and moves up, can help uh, take these parties out of the the hardest core, you know, Trumpists and, and so on, and move them to something that's a little more reasonable.
1: Rachel, thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much.
0: And this week, we also want to bring an extra extra to you. Uh, We have been covering for the last year, also out of the Black Lives Matter movement, the protests we have seen in New Mexico really around our colonial past and uh, statues and memorials dedicated to that colonial history and particularly Spanish conquistadors. We have seen the La Ornada uh, sculpture in Old Town Albuquerque. Uh, Be the focus of some of that protest, and a statue of Don Juan de Oñate there taken down, until a permanent solution can be found for this complicated uh, slice of history we have seen in the plaza and Santa Fe, an obelisk that also uh, memorializes some of that colonial history that is very difficult, especially for Native American populations, that that has been uh, torn down by protesters. In fact, and. Officials there trying to decide how to handle these kind of issues as well Uh, And last summer we talked to Vanessa Fonseca Chavez. She's a New Mexico native and an assistant professor at Arizona State University And she is co-editor of the book Corencia Reflections on New Mexico Homeland She is also uh, a Chicana who is critical of monuments to Spanish conquistadors and was also responsible worked on A decolonial bibliography of controversial conqueror Don Juan de Oñate Uh, just a fascinating conversation we had with her but again we couldn't fit it all in the show so I want to bring that to you here and in this uh, segment you will hear her discuss her research and how her upbringing in rural New Mexico has helped spur the interest in this topic Uh, she grew up around Gallup New Mexico and as you will hear just didn't learn a lot about this complicated history in her growing up. And so she is working to change that now and to help us all make sense of these complicated uh, and complex historical issues. So here she is again, Vanessa Fonseca Chavez with correspondent Russell Contreras.
1: Thank you, Dr. Fonseca Chavez, for joining us again you grew up in Grants, New Mexico in a Hispanic family. Um, what kind of conversations did you have growing up about New Mexico's past before you became a scholar in terms of this Hispanic colonial traditions? Was this a conversation that you had on your family? Or were you even aware of it?
3: Actually, I probably wasn't even really aware of it growing up in Grants. I knew that you know, I knew the on that Noyate had been in that area. I knew that you know I lived in a former uranium mining boom town. I knew that where I lived just outside of uh, Grants in a double wide trailer off i-40 was previously the carrot capital of the world. Uh, they grew a lot of carrots in that region. Um, the soil was you know perfect for that. So I knew all these sort of little things about the region. Um, in my immediate family, we didn't talk a lot about those things. Uh, my grandmother lived in Gallup, New Mexico, and so we often took trips to Gallup. And so I think for a lot of people in New Mexico, uh, growing up in a Hispanic family, you tend to live these experiences rather than sit down and have deep conversations about them. So when we lived in, uh, we had moved to Puaque, uh when I was in elementary school and uh, it wasn't dual language programs that were in place. It was just, there was a cultural component to our learning. So once a week we would go to Senora Valdez's class and we would, um, you know, we would sing Spanish songs. We would write in, I have a, a little notebook from third grade that says like, Así es Nuevo Mexico. And it's uh, sort of this like weird compilation of my like uh, substandard like bilingual skills at the time. And I'm like, una vez we went to go fishing and we caught got, you know, so there it was, it was an attempt for us to connect with our cultural heritage, but in a way that didn't seem forced. And my teacher in third grade, his name was Mr. Valdez. He was from Tierra Maria. And I remember him being in class with his guitar singing La Bamba. And so we were always really immersed in the culture. But we, I don't remember having like critical conversations about it and it wasn't until I got to UNM where, like I said, I started having very visceral responses to what was going on around me. And I think that sort of determined what my scholarly trajectory was gonna be.
1: Now, we were having a visceral debate in the, sh- on, in the streets in Albuquerque and in Santa Fe around these monuments. But what is it like in the academy with your work uh, from the Onyate Project to uh, your current book Is there, are there scholars that are, is the academy not having these same visceral debates uh, amongst themselves, or is this seems to be the direction that the scholarship is going around this debate in New Mexico and the American Southwest?
3: I mean, there's a lot of scholars um, that have been doing this great work, Michael Trujillo, Yolanda Leyva, individuals throughout the Southwest who are responding to these sort of colonial era statues and monuments. Um, One of the conversations I was having yesterday, which I thought was pretty uh, interesting, was that this is the work that we have signed up to do. Right. This is our job. This is what we've dedicated ourselves to do, to do the scholarship and the research that helps people understand the context of what's going on. Now, we're not community activists. Um, Community activists have you know, a separate role, but there are also opportunities for, you know, people who do scholarship and community activists to work together in different ways so that we can come to a better understanding of what's happening. Um, you know, it's difficult, like I said, to not be physically in New Mexico and viewing these things as someone who is interested in oral histories, ethnography, sort of looking, you know, that sort of field work that is important to understanding the context, right? And instead, you get to read uh, what's been written in the newspapers, what friends have shared with you, you know videos that they share with you and ask you not to share with anybody else. So you do have some kind of context from being outside of New Mexico, but it's not the same as being a community activist. but I have to tell myself at the end of the day you're not a community activist. you're a professor that works at an institution and you have your sort a different kind of activist agenda.
1: Thank you, Dr. Fonseca Chavez for joining us. We appreciate it.
3: All right, thanks Russ.
0: Each week here on the show, we uh, try to bring you extra content as well through our social media channels, uh, usually through Facebook Lives that host Gene Grant does, and this week was no exception. It was recently announced that the city of Albuquerque was going to dedicate a million dollars to helping black-owned businesses and the African-American community here, and there was a process of exactly how to disperse that money. And we wanted to get an update on how that's going where that money is headed and how it will help uh, folks in the african-american community here in albuquerque and it was a fascinating conversation and wanted to bring that to you as well and uh, as always follow us on our social media channels throughout the week to get in on the conversation to see these things as they happen We are at New Mexico in Focus. You can also search for at NM in Focus and find us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. We are all those places, and we encourage you to give us a follow there. And as always, we encourage you to go back and listen to past episodes of this podcast where we're always trying to bring you some of that extra content as well. Uh, But we want to thank you, as always, for tuning in. And we will hear you, and you will hear us again next time, very shortly, on New Mexico and Focus the
4: podcast. Hey, folks! Hope you had a good Fourth of July weekend. It was noisy; it was very noisy around town. But thankfully, we're past that. It is now the day after; it's Tuesday after the Monday holiday. Hope you were safe. In all seriousness, we're here with Nicole Bedford. We're going to be talking, catching up with Nicole on something that's been a very interesting a uh, new wrinkle to Albuquerque's business community, and that is focusing on the African-American community. Nicole is the community process coordinator for the One Albuquerque Fund. Uh, it is, we'll talk about the details of that in a quick second, but Nicole, first of all, thank you for joining. And I have to say, if you think way back, you know, a couple of years, not way, way back, but a couple of years, it got off to a bit of a rocky start. The idea of the fund, there was some folks in city council that had some issues with it about its management and such. So let's talk about this. Why did the fund come into being? Why was the mayor supportive of it? And what is the fund supposed to accomplish uh, and for who? Okay. Mm -hmm.
5: Um, The fund came about um, because I know that a lot of the African-American community was kind of complaining because I know when a lot of money came out for COVID, a lot of our Black-owned businesses didn't receive funding. Mm -hmm. And so there there was a kind of Kind of talk in the black community how our businesses were not receiving the same grants as other businesses were mm-hmm. and so that's when the mayor had set aside um one million dollars which in turn the city council um had approved it into going to the black-owned businesses to help out with the covet relief
4: mm-hmm. and again it's for, it's specifically for black-owned businesses let's be just very clear on this a lot of folks get confused you know, we've not done something like this in Albuquerque before, so I think it might be kind of shocking that would, there would be money geared specifically for the African-American community. But outside of COVID, was there, I, I believe the mayor wanted to use this fund to sort of address things as well that, you know, things that hadn't had a chance to happen in the past for African-American business owners here as well. What's your, what's, tell the folks about that as well, the thought behind that.
5: Yeah, I think it was just to change that attitude, because I know in, in the state of New Mexico, everybody keeps saying it's a tricultural state. Right. And so I think the mayor really wanted to change that atmosphere that this is not it's a multicultural state, not a tricultural state. Mm-hmm. And so just bringing in that black community and being able to provide some sort of um some, some sort of relief into the black community and trying to change it and showing that we're a multicultural state and that we're all in this together mm-hmm. um especially here in albuquerque so i think it's really just to, to t- change that way of thinking um that we're not a tri tricultural state that we're a multicultural state
4: gotcha and mm-hmm. he, he would be right on that that's uh, obviously something we're trying to, we've been trying to get past for a long time here mm-hmm. so who, who qualifies for the fund how does one get in on this what's in Again, can anybody that owns a black business right now qualify for this fund?
5: They can, as long as long as they have the, the proper documentation, and really we're not even disqualifying people that may not have um, the proper, they may not have their taxes or they may not have their tax ID number. We're not disqualifying them. What we're trying to do is provide them with that education and those trainings. So we have partnered with the African-American Greater Albuquerque Chamber of Commerce, and they will be providing training for those businesses and nonprofits. We also incorporated nonprofit organizations because a lot of of them didn't receive grants and a lot of them didn't have their fundraisers because of COVID Um, and with those fundraisers is what they would use that money for in working with the black community. And so a lot of them lost out a lot last year when they weren't able to have those fundraisers. So we're also incorporating nonprofits, but anybody can apply for the funds as long as they have the proper documentation. If they don't have that proper documentation, go ahead and apply. What we do is put those people into that second phase and um, provide training that's paid for. They don't have to pay for the training, but training is provided for them to be in order for them to get the documentation they need to be able to apply for the funding. Mm
4: -hmm. How much how much could one receive out of the million dollars? How much can any one individual uh, appropriate?
5: so for black owned businesses for the business side they can apply for up to fifty thousand dollars and for nonprofit side they can apply for up to twenty thousand dollars and it it sounds like oh go ahead i'm sorry
4: (laughs) fifty thousand is is not too not too bad it that's you know that'll get you over the hump in a lot of cases and how, how did they how did that uh number come to be was there a story behind that
5: Oh, uh, kinda, because we we were trying to we really calculated how many businesses that we can incorporate. Um a million dollars sounds like a lot, but it, it really when it comes to it, it's really not a whole lot. And so we really had to make sure that we would have enough money to um you know, incorporate more businesses, because if the more, if we did 100,200, you would only get maybe 10 businesses. So we really wanted to help as many businesses as we can. And so that's why we came up with that amount.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's one time can can a business reapply later? Or is that just a one time one time deal?
5: Right now it's just a one-time deal. Um, We are working towards getting more money put into that Black Investment Fund. Mm -hmm. And so until then, it is a one-time deal. Um, Hopefully we can get grants, um, we can get people to sponsor or to to, um, invest into the Black Investment Fund. Um, Our goal is to really have a a larger amount of pot of money to be able to put back into the Black community.
4: Mm Now, one of the criteria in the questionnaire, as I'm looking at the Black Investment Fund um, application, and, and that is, oh, uh, where I just lost it. <laughs> is that sorry, is the small business Black-owned 51% or more, is the small business woman-owned 51% or more, or veteran-owned 51% or owned or more? Is, is there, a, am I seeing a criteria here, meaning if if one matches all three of those criteria, they might have? a better chance than just one? How, how is the scoring done?
5: And that is the scoring. It is the criteria um, because there's some black owned businesses that are, are partial Are <laughs> they they're like 51% black owned. Um, I had a question. A, a gentleman is half black. <laughs> and so it was like, you know, can I still apply? So there, there's a lot of different um, criteria to, to black owned businesses right. and so it is on a scoring it is on a scoring basis so you do get a little bit more points if you're women if you're owned by if you're black owned woman <laughs> sure. um and and also a veteran but it's, it's not too much but we're really looking for the black owned businesses
4: right exactly right mm-hmm. um how does one to deter- you know this happens a lot in new mexico um where folks claim to be a certain percentage ownership, either female or black owned or minority owned to be able to qualify for certain monies. a lot of people play games with that kind of thing around Mm -hmm. here. Is there a committee who's, who's actually vetting the, uh, the applications?
5: So we have a steering committee. There's 10 members that are steering committee that are going through the applications. Um, If they're claiming that they are 51% or they're, they're, they're less. It'll be on their documentation, a part of ownership of what they have. Um, we have one business, it's it's partially Black-owned, but that person is saying that they're 70, 70% Black-owned, um, and they're 70%, I'm sorry, they're 70, 70% partnership in that business. And so it would be on their business license as well. So they would have to show the documentation to show that they are you know, at least 50% of ownership on that business. But we have a committee that's made up of 10 people that are from the Albuquerque in the community area.
4: Mm -hmm. And uh, talk about them, if you would, a little bit. And who, you know, who makes them up? Do we have a board? I see my man, Charles Ashley, is involved, Mm -hmm. which gives me a a lot of good feelings right there because he's such a a rock for our African-American community. Who, Who else is part of the team making up these decisions?
5: Okay, so with the the. One, one Albuquerque fund has a board, um, and so they that board was already put together, and Charles Ashley is the president of the board. They have an awesome board um, that works really hard. Um, my job was to put together a steering committee, and mm-hmm. so I put t- together a steering committee. We have 10 members right now. Um, the steering committee is made up of community members that have been, that live in Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have one that's in Rear Rancho just to get that outside input. Um, they range from a college graduate all the way to very experienced adult. <laughs> I'll put it that way. So it's a it's a wide range of um It's a wide range of ages. It's a wide range of different backgrounds. We have business owners. We have nonprofit um, people that have been involved in nonprofits for many, many, many years. We have a pastor that's on the committee. Um, Again, we have a student that just graduated in business um, just to get that that new focus. Um, We have someone that's from, from from the school system. Um, to look at for the kids. And then we have another gentleman that he's he's starting up up and coming and doing different businesses. He does a lot of volunteer work. And so it's just a wide range of different, um, and we have a, a community advocate as well that's on, on the board. And so it's just a wide range of different backgrounds, of different ages, um, just to get a whole holistic, you know, a big approach of what's coming. So it's not just one set of group and they're just, you know, focused on one area. Everybody has a different, everybody comes from a different background. Mm-hmm. Um, some have been here for 20 years. Some have been here for three years, but it helps us to really determine what what is needed in the community. Because the one person that has been here, you know, she's a college graduate. She just moved down here. She just graduated. You know, she lets us know what's missing when she came into Albuquerque versus someone like me that's born and raised in Albuquerque. We may not see, um, you know, we may not see the same things that are missing because we're we're used to being here in Albuquerque. So, it's it's a really good community committee.
4: Interesting. <laughs> now, my understanding is the fund application period started on June 19th and it's going to end this month, July 19th. What's mm-hmm. what's the been the reaction so far? It, 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 you're getting a rush of applications or <laughs> how would you describe what you're seeing so far?
5: Um, it's, it's, it's been fun. I've, I've met a lot of new people that I didn't know existed. I, I've um, seen a lot of new businesses that I did not know existed. So we are getting a really, um, people are really interested. Um, we're getting a lot of calls on it. Um, a lot of people, there's a, like a lot of health centers out here that that are black owned um and that i wasn't you know never was aware of um i actually went and visited one business they just wanted me to see what their business was like so i went out and visited that it was in cottonwood mall and you know they're they're trying to start up a um a dance center, so i it's it's been a good reaction um a lot of people are really trying to apply, a lot of businesses are applying, nonprofits like not so much, but a lot of um, businesses have applied. So we're probably up to about 30 applications already in in the businesses. Interesting.
4: Mm -hmm. Um, As we were talking a little bit earlier before we came on, just to clear up my own confusion, there is gonna be a sort of a two phase
5: Mm -hmm. uh, angle
4: to this. Talk about that if you would, if if, if there's another phase coming up after the July 19th uh, deadline.
5: Okay. Yes. Phase one is to help with the COVID relief, basically. Um, it was to help businesses with COVID relief. And then it was also to help nonprofits that were hit with COVID that are not able to do their, for now in the future time, this money would be for them in the future um, to help them with any of the events or any of, um, any of anything that they did in the community, in the Black community that was to help them. Um, nonprofits have to be a 501c3. The second phase is to help new businesses. Um, we're kind of doing like a shark tank type thing <laughs> with new businesses. And so they would come and present to us on on their new businesses, um, you know, the need that's out there. We're looking for something that's different. We're looking for um, businesses that, you know, that Albuquerque really doesn't have or something that's unique about their business. So we're looking for new businesses. Also with phase two, uh, we're looking to reinvest or invest into the Black community. We wanna make a difference. We wanna use this, this is an opportunity, opportunity we haven't had to have. So we just don't wanna just throw out money to anything. We wanna throw out money that's gonna be, that's gonna make a difference. That's gonna, um, you know, have a return on it. That's gonna really open up the eyes of, of the Black community. And so, but we wanna involve the Black community. Um, if people go on to the One Albuquerque Fund, org webpage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a survey that the community can take and talk about what investments they would like happen in our black community. But we're looking at, you know, health centers, especially with mental health, doing projects of oh. mental health, bringing in arts and culture. There's not a lot of arts, you know, not a lot of black culture here in New Mexico, but bringing that into Albuquerque, the arts and culture. Um, you know, whether that's a jazz festival or whether we're bringing in the 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 black circus you know just just having some kind of entertainment for our black for our black community and and for anybody really um you know whether it's it's community projects community gardens community centers um, just something that's really going to to affect uh the black community so we just we just don't want to just throw that money out there we just really want to um have that effect. And so that's what phase two is, is. Phase two is to help new businesses, but also to help our Black community and bringing in initiatives or programs to our Black
4: community. That sounds good. That sounds good. Are there any categories that you and the team are looking for, especially? Meaning, if, if someone walks, a woman or a man, Black woman or a Black man walks in the door with an idea for a category that you're really looking to fill here in Albuquerque, whether it's the mayor's initiatives or Anything else? Is that part of the decision process as well? Do certain kinds of businesses in certain categories have an advantage?
5: No, not really. We're just, we're looking, just, we're, we're really looking for something unique, even if it's a barbecue place and they're doing um, one of our stirring communities vegan. And so if they could do a, a vegan barbecue, <laughs> that, that would be, that would be idea. Um, you know, so it's just, it's just new ideas. I, um, there's, there's a lot of new businesses, um, people are, that are moving here that had businesses before that are moving here. Um, so it's not one certain category, it's just something that's gonna, you know, it, it, even if it's not new, but something that's gonna really impact the black community.
4: Gotcha, are, are efforts to get into the recreational cannabis business allowed under the One Albuquerque Fund criteria?
5: Ah, oh, we never talked about it. <laughs> so that would, yeah, that would be something, something new, but we, we really never discussed that before. That, okay. that would be a good topic. That, that, that would be something for the committee to decide on.
4: <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, you know, it's a hard question to ask, but part and parcel of small business is failure. It's part of how, you know, I say that positively, meaning that's how business people grow is sometimes as they mm-hmm. fail and they come back again and do even better. But business failure for new businesses, of course, is is a difficulty. Is there a contingency plan, either emotionally or otherwise, within the group looking down the road to be able to deal with businesses who don't make it, but then still they still received funds, but for whatever reason, couldn't quite punch through and get a thriving business going? Have you guys talked about that as well and how to, how to handle something like that?
5: We have, and so um, besides working with the African American Chamber here here in Albuquerque, um, we're also we're also looking into um, building a partnership with the Small Business Administration with the New Mexico Small Business Administration. Mm-hmm. And so we we want to see people um, we want to see people thrive. We want to see people to become successful. Um, we don't want to see businesses fail. And so that's one of the part of that second phase too, is that training is mm-hmm. the training is the follow through. Um, I had a community, a community member approach me and he was actually talking about, you know, maybe contracting an accountant to help new businesses or to help businesses with their taxes and with their accounting and setting mm-hmm. up a system so they wouldn't fail. And so that that was something that, um, you know, that we could talk about is how to contract an accountant for so many hours and then those businesses can pay for the rest of the hours, but to start them um, with something that they can go into and help them with their accounting, with their taxes. Um, again, with the Small Business Administration, um, we we're looking in partnering with them and then also with the Albuquerque Chamber of commerce. So, we're going to try on our end, we're going to try everything that we can do to make sure that these businesses, whether they're existing businesses or new businesses, that they're going to succeed.
4: Mm-hmm. Good stuff there. Um, out of state people, is there a, I'm curious if they have to have lived here for a certain amount of time. I'm concerned, of course, where, you know, folks see an opportunity. We are an opportunistic culture we live in. Um, I might just want to come to New Mexico and open a business. Is that okay? If someone's here for a month and they, you know, come phase two, they want to start a new business, they can hey, come see you folks. Would that work?
5: It will, but, but priority would be for the people that have already been here and have been established. That would be our priority before right. we go into people that have, are, are newly to Albuquerque. But um, yeah, our priority would be for business that are already established here or people that have been here at least a year. Um, that would be our priority. <laughs>
4: okay. I forgot to ask earlier about the businesses that qualified. I apologize to circle back, but are any businesses or categories of businesses that automatically do not qualify for the one Albuquerque fund?
5: No, not really. It's just if, as long as they, as long as, as long as they have their, can show their proper work. They can show that you know that their business is, is existence. Um, They have their taxes, they have their payroll taxes, they're up to date, Um, they don't have any felonies or bankruptcies. Um, Even with a bankruptcy, even if it's you know if it's less than a year with a bankruptcy, even with a bankruptcy, if they had it in the future, they still would be able to apply. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're really trying to help these these businesses as much as that as much as we can. Mm-hmm. And so um, again, we have a criteria. They the steering committee has a criteria that they base the applications on. Each application is a point system mm-hmm. that they that they're going by. But um, any business the black owned businesses and even again if you're 50 percent black owned you you can apply Mm -hmm. for for this grant um but we're really just trying to help every everyone that we can Mm -hmm.
4: Mm -hmm. that makes sense that makes sense nicole i can't thank you enough this is a very Mm -hmm. interesting idea and again it was somewhat controversial when it first landed in city council's lab but in a way actually it was a good thing to have happen. You know, we sort of got through that bumpy phase of it. Mm-hmm. And there were some legit questions brought up and that, you know, were answered and the board, you know, responded. So it, it actually, you know, has a better, hopefully a better result, of, you know, settling those things before you know, going out to the public. Anything else you want the public to know about? How does one get, how does one find, you gave the website once, uh, once I mm-hmm. want to, we'll put it up in the, in the thread here, but go ahead and give the your contact information because you're obviously the, the point of contact as well. So how do how do folks just get with you guys uh, directly?
5: Okay. Um so if they're interested in applying and they just want to just want to go to the application process again, um any any black owned business can apply and any nonprofit that is a 501c3 or has a fiscal agent that has a, that has a 501C3 can apply. And they can go to the onealbuquerque.org website and go under black investment. And that's where they'll find the applications. Um, if you have any questions that that you know that you have, or you really wanna know more about the funding, mm-hmm. um, I can be reached by email, which is Nicole at onealbuquerque.org. Um, or you can reach me and I'll give you my phone number. It's 505. 3229604 mm-hmm. and they can call me you know call me with any questions that they may have or you know if they want to know a little bit more about the fund or even phase 2 um i asked the community if they go to the 1albuquerque.org website mm-hmm. under black investment there's a survey that's on there as a survey monkey that people can um Go on there and please give us our feedback. Give us, you know, let us know what you would like to see happen within mm-hmm. the Black community. We would love to hear everybody's feedback.
4: Mm-hmm. I, I do have a, a, just another quick thought. Oh, by the way, I should mention when you say one Albu- albuquerque.org, that's one the word spelled out one in albuquerque, the complete word.org. <laughs> uh, same For your email as well, it's, it's, it's uh, okay. Everything to-
5: is spelled out. Sorry. Yes, everything is spelled out.
4: <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. It, it's uh it's uh how transparent will the list be uh when when the this first phase decisions are made? Will will the public know everyone that's gotten money and will the
5: public also know who hasn't gotten money this time around? They will they would know who has gotten money. We we um we are transparent, it would be up on our website okay. um who has received the grant money. Um we would not um Put out who has not received the money but we would put out who has received grant money
4: and in the amounts for the individual businesses mm-hmm. as well? yes okay. yes
5: uh-huh that's one thing about one albuquerque fund um, with the board they're very transparent they don't want to you know hide they want to be very transparent uh, to the community
4: good stuff nicole thank you so much we really appreciate your okay. time <laughs> if we can be of any more help getting the word out let us know absolutely this is a okay. uh, big time Big time turn of events for Albuquerque. I, I, I think three or four years ago, if someone said this was possible, they would have said it's not possible.
5: <laughs> exactly.
4: <laughs> you know what I mean? And here it is. So I have to thank you and all the others in the board and Charles and everybody else in, the, in your team as well for, for getting this all squared away.
5: Okay. Well, thank you. And and I want to thank the steering committee and the board for the one Albuquerque board, because they have stood, the board has stood behind us and the steering committee believe and have worked very, very hard in, in getting this money out to the community. And, and they really, really care. So I, I, I want to send kudos to, to both the board and the steering
4: committee. Well done. Well done. <laughs>